Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. You're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 what's cracking? Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio, brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com, and I am your host, Darren McDuffie. Just got off feeling a little bit excited. I just got done watching The Walking Dead. I'm a big fan of that show, so I just got done watching the episode from last night and was Thoroughly surprised by what happened. If you've not seen it, I won't ruin it for you. But if you're a Walking Dead fan, it's going to definitely be a, a great show for you. We have a great show tonight. We'll be talking with Dr. Sabrina Siegel regarding brain myths. She has a YouTube channel where she talks about the brain. She's a neurobiologist and very well adapted to showing her expertise on the show tonight. If you listened to the show last week or you have not listened to the show last week and you want to, go back and listen to Soul Speak. I did a show with Julia Cannon. The show is called Soul Speak, and it's about listening to the messages the body gives us. The body normally gives us messages through pain and we tend to not listen. So sometimes we'll get a little ache, a little pain, and then we won't listen to that. We'll ignore it. And then something really big like cancer or diabetes or something else has to come up to us to kind of knock us over the head before we begin paying attention um, with that. And uh, Julia and I went over a lot of things on that show uh, regarding just listen to the body's messages and how to pay attention to your emotions. So if you have not listened to that show, I would encourage you to go back and do so just simply because um, it's a very good show uh, to for people who might be experiencing some type of illness but can catch their illnesses early through really just catching their emotions. So I would advise you to go back and read that as well, um, listen to that show as well. If you can do me a really huge favor, if you're listening to the show, you've downloaded any of the episodes in iTunes, I would really appreciate if you went and you did a review for me. That review would be uh, for Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. And I believe on iTunes, it's under Fat Man Radio. And um, it's under Fat Man Radio. And uh, you can... Uh, search for it on the Fat Man Radio and then go there and give a um, a brief review of the show. And that's how iTunes actually rates the shows. They actually buy the reviews. So if you, the more reviews you're getting, the more the show will be pushed up. And I definitely think that I have one of the the best shows out there when it comes to the health and wellness category. And I really want people to hear the show more, more and attract more listeners. So, again, if you can do me a huge favor, I would really appreciate that. Um, so I'm talking real quick here. Uh, Sabrina's having a problem. Hold on one second for me. Here, and I'm going to really show her how to do. She's calling in through Skype. So uh, just just bear with me here.
So while I'm doing, while I'm waiting for her to call in through Skype, uh, just wanted to remind you that I've been doing a lot of street videos on YouTube. I normally do those videos in the mornings when I go to the park. I like to walk around the park and then my mind starts going and then I will film a video and I normally put those out on Facebook. I've just started uploading those videos to my YouTube channel as well and I just call those mainly street videos because that's what they are. I'm actually in the street and I'm just doing impromptu videos. So if you would like, you could go over to my YouTube channel. It's called Fat Body BC on YouTube. Again, that's Fat Body, Fat with a PH Body BC on YouTube and there you can uh, pay it, uh, get all the videos there, just the newest ones that I upload and videos that I've done over the years because my videos have changed quite a bit over the years since um, I've started. So there's all my videos that are on there, even when I started with fitness and as I got more into nutrition, I share those videos on there as well. So you have a chance to go on there and uh, see all those videos. And you can go on there and subscribe in any of my videos that come out. You'll always be notified of the latest videos. So you'll be able to um, to get the latest videos on there. So bear with me one second, guys. Let me see if everything is okay with her. I'm going to uh, mute myself out for a minute here and make sure that everything is okay with her and that she's able to call in through Skype. Hello. 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 Hey, can you hear me? Hi, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I'm not sure what's going on. Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I'm not sure what's going on. Hello, can you hear me? Hi. <laughs> you can hear me? Okay, great. I only, yes, I can hear you. Can you yeah, hear me? Yeah, I don't Yeah, I can hear you fine. I can hear you fine. I'm actually going to turn the volume up a little bit. So, glad you're here. I so just sorry. read your bio yeah. and uh apologize to the audience okay. sometimes with the Skype thing. It like I've had a couple of guests who for some odd reason just Skype just goes haywire when they try to call in through okay. Skype. And then some people, yeah. they just, you know, it just works right off the bat. So no, no big okay, deal, gotcha. no big deal. Okay. But um, <laughs> glad to have you well, on. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm really excited to discuss uh, some things about the brain here. But before we get into the questions that I have for you, I just wanted to ask you, how did you, you are a neurobiologist, but how did you springboard yourself into you were a fitness coach, and then you got into neurobiology. <laughs> how, how did that actually happen? Well, those those actually kind of came together at the same time. So it was actually when during my graduate career, um, my, during my graduate school career, um, I come from a family that has really struggled with weight, and um, my mom has type 2 diabetes, and so it, it's been a challenge for my family, and I definitely – uh, don't have the genes that we <laughs> that we all kind of hope for in terms of that. So I've had to work very hard um, mm -hmm. to stay healthy, and um, I started 
really got me into sports in high school, and I became a runner, and I did track and cross country. And then uh, back in 2004, I ran my first uh, marathon, my first full marathon. I ran the LA Marathon, and then I did a few half marathons from there. And uh, probably about, gosh, halfway through graduate school, I just got completely obsessed with fitness. I started lifting heavy weights and kickboxing and just any kind of exercise that was out there, you name it, I would do it. And I loved it. I just fell in love with it. And it really, really um, just sort of just caused this domino effect in my life where I saw uh, just so many positive changes, everything from, you know, um, just emotional health, not just physical. And, um, of course, the, you know, uh, just maintaining a healthy weight and, and feeling great was was wonderful. So at, the, at about the same time, um, and we'll get into this a lot more as we talk about the science uh, behind it, but at about the same time, I started to get more and more interested in exercise and the brain research um, during my, my doctorate. And I just been as much as I possibly can. And then I, um, we piloted a study back in, uh, it was published in 2012 and focused on exercise and uh, patients with mild cognitive impairment. We'll talk about that a lot more, I'm sure, <laughs> in a little bit. But um, we, we published some really, really surprising results in terms of what exercise can do for memory. And um, so really these kind of two areas of my life that I was extremely passionate about came together in my uh, professional career. And that's, that's just kind of how it happened. And then while I was in graduate school, in order to help pay the bills and because I really loved being able to help people with, um, you know, I had had such a positive um, impact of fitness on my life that I, you know, I, I ended up talking to and sharing those stories with everybody I met pretty much. And, and just, I became known as like the motivator. I was the person who would get my friends to go to the gym, you know, to, Oh, come live with me. Oh, come join my gym or, you know, uh, get a membership or come try out kickboxing with me. It's so much fun. And, um, you know, so we had like this whole team of neuroscientists, um, students, we'd go to kickboxing and um, mm-hmm. things like that. And so I just really, really loved motivating people and, and watching the pounds come off and seeing them so much happier and more confident with, um, you know, just who they were and accomplishing all these goals that they wanted to achieve. And and so um, so I became a fitness coach and started helping people, um, you know, just really live active, healthy lifestyles and and I've just been committed to that ever since. So did, it sort of converged simultaneously. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, they definitely are my, my two loves in life. And um, really my mission is to bring this information to the world um, in a way that it's fun, it's easy to understand, it's exciting, and where people can actually benefit from, um, from knowing the brain science behind what exercise can do for you and, and really just, a lot of other areas as well, nutrition and, and health and how that can impact your brain because I'm a really firm believer of lifestyle choices and that helping mm-hmm. us become the best potentials or, I mean, really activating our best potentials. So uh, putting our, our best selves forward. And I think a lot of times it's obvious for people to see the benefits physically from living an active lifestyle, but they won't necessarily notice or even care that much about the mental benefits. And when I can allow someone to see just how much better their life can be from 
um, using these techniques to improve their mental capacity, it's it's just phenomenal how what what people are capable of. And so to me, that's that's when I think of fitness, I think of both of those aspects: mental fitness and physical fitness, as being sort of what we should strive for as people. Yeah, <laughs> so, we we kind of share that, that that same route because I was a, a fitness coach before getting into the uh, nutrition side. But there are some other interesting things about you. I normally do a lot of research before I start the show. Um, you have a twin, is that correct? I do. I do. Yes, that's <laughs> correct. An identical twin. Yeah, identical twin. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have a a yeah. new baby nephew, is that yes, is that I right? Do. Yes, and I do. <laughs> I did some digging in the crate, so to speak, and I found <laughs> out that you were on a movie at some point in time. So you have an actress yeah. credit. That's actually true. I am um, a member of SAG Screen Actors Guild, and um, I, my twin sister, and I did our first movie when we were 19 days old. Um, we were in movies and commercials until we were about 10. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, we got an, I don't know how that happened so early in life, but we got an agent primarily because one of my mother's friends said, you know, oh, they're always looking for twins. And, uh, we grew up in Los Angeles. So, uh, we, we get approached, my mom would get approached a lot because she, they'd see us just two little identical twins walking around and they'd say, oh, do they have an agent? And, um, you know, the film industry really likes to, um, they really like to include uh, identical twins because there's a lot of um, laws in place in terms of how long a child can be on camera um, without having to take breaks, and so they can they can swap out the twin a lot. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. so most of the things we did, we played um, the same the same role. But um, probably what you saw, if you, I am in the um, IMDb, and so is my twin sister. That's probably the only movie I remember filming. We were like four and a half, and we did play twins in, in that movie. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah little, so you definitely take a, you definitely went from like I would call the the sexier side of life into neurobiology. So that was quite yeah. a a detour that you take. But um, Dr. Sabrina, getting into the exercise and how exercise actually affects the brain. And you got into a little bit of this at uh, at the beginning with the first question, but I wanted to tell, I wanted you to kind of share with the audience and me how exercise really affects the brain and how it actually ends up helping it. Okay. Um, absolutely. So this is probably my favorite topic in the whole world. And um, what I, I kind of like to preface it with is if if you were to say to anyone, pretty much anyone now in the general public, you know, oh, so, you know, exercise is good for your brain, right? There's probably not a person on the planet who disagrees with you, right? So we, right. we we kind of know that now. It's like common knowledge. It's kind of like when I tell people how excited I am about, you know, the research I'm currently doing and what I plan to do, people sometimes look at me and go, well, don't we already know that, you know, <laughs> um, which is actually really interesting because, that goes along with my whole basis behind um, my brain, my brain Myth Monday uh, video series, and really just this, this notion that you know we get an idea and it goes through the media, and um, we start to just jump to conclusions about things and to make sort of common sense assumptions. And what's interesting about that is that um, I, when when you look at scientific studies, um, there are many areas within neuroscience that are inconclusive. And so you might look at um, the effects of certain psychiatric drugs or Uh the effects of different types of nutrition. 
um, the results will tend to be inconclusive. So that some studies are suggesting a positive effect of something and some studies are, are um, counteracting that or showing a negative effect. When it comes to exercise and pretty much every dimension of cognition and memory, there, it's, it's just across the board we always find positive effects. And that, I, I still have, yeah, I've read hundreds, if not thousands of articles on exercise in the brain, and I've never read one where I've seen a negative effect. So, mm-hmm. so that being said, you know, it's, it's not that surprising that most people know, okay, well, so there's a positive effect of exercise on the brain. But what, what's fascinating to me is that that's just, you know, what the, what the general public knows is just giving the surface of really what's going on. And what's interesting is that, so the way that, the way that I pretty much present to people are um, the biggest findings in terms of exercise and learning and memory stem from two different approaches. And the first one that probably more people know about is the effects of long-term or chronic exercise. So what you would say is, okay, we've looked at people who have participated in an exercise um, regimen for several months, and we did a bunch of cognitive tests in the beginning, we did a bunch of cognitive tests at the end, we found they improved. Um, things like that, or markers, or um, even neuroimaging techniques, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And what's going on in terms of that a long-term approach, what's actually happening, um, and they, they've done a lot of studies on this in animals, and then they have now tried repeating this in humans, but basically what's going on is those changes are actual physical changes in the brain. So those are cellular and molecular changes that we can measure in, in animals. And I'll try not to get too technical here, but the mm-hmm. biggest component behind that research is the increase in what we call a neurotrophin. And um, many people may not have ever heard of it, but it's kind of my favorite word. Um, it's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. And what that is is it's just it's a, it's a protein that basically aids in the survival and protection of brain cells in the most important brain regions that are involved in learning and memory. And so a lot of neuroscientists will call this, refer to BDNF as sort of the miracle grow for the brain. And the reason why is because, gosh, up until about 15 or 20 years ago, neuroscientists used to think that you're born with all the brain cells you'll ever have. And we actually know that's not true, that you actually are able to form new brain cells, and that's what we call neurogenesis, um, particularly in a region of the brain that is heavily involved in learning and memory. And it's not important, but it's called the hippocampus. And so what, what's interesting is that um, this discovery was made at my alma mater, where I actually got my doctorate at UC Irvine, and it was made by my former dissertation um, committee member, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Carl Kotman. So he actually discovered this in, in rats, and, um, and this was published in, in 1995. And so back in 1995, that just led to this explosion of studies. So that's what really led to this kind of focus on long-term, okay, what are the effects of long-term effects of exercise? And while that's exciting to me because I can think about 
sort of long-term effects to committing to exercise kind of as a lifestyle. I think in this day and age, especially when it comes to younger generations, people kind of want a, a quick fix. You know, they want like right. a, 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 you know what I mean? Like more of an immediate benefit. Right. And a lot of times when I tell people things about exercise, they'll say, oh, that's all great, but that means, you know, I have to like get off the couch and do something. You know, they, they'll they say, well, can't, can't they just make a drug for that? <laughs> and I always <laughs> and I always say, wait a second, you know, like this is so much better. It's natural. It's so much more fun. You know, don't you want to be active? Um, but that being said, I started to get really interested in, okay, what are the effects of acute exercise? Um, is there any possibility that we are reaping benefits from acute exercise? So that would be like if you just participated in a short bout of exercise, what does that do for your brain? Does it do anything positive? Could that help your memory boost learning at all, right? right. And uh, when I first proposed this idea to my my thesis advisor, he wasn't he wasn't completely sold on it. Um, and you know, I, I basically had to dig into the literature and and show him the strong foundation that really his work and um, the people who came before him had had laid down. And essentially, what what we did was we focused on the release of a specific brain chemical or neurotransmitter and. Um, it's called nor- norepinephrine or noradrenaline. Mm-hmm. It's, it has two names for some reason. I don't know why they like to make it tricky in science. But um, and, and we can go into that a little bit more if you want to talk more about stress in the brain. It does function as a stress hormone in the body, but it actually functions as a very potent uh, neurotransmitter, and it has been shown in so many studies, just a huge, like thousands of studies in animal in uh, animal research to have this really strong effect on on enhancing memories. And so what we did was we had these, um, we had older people, so between 50 and 85 years old, (laughs) and then um, age-matched people who were diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, and Mm -hmm. we had them just exercise for six minutes, only six minutes at a moderate intensity. And what we found was we measured this biomarker for noradrenaline, and uh, the biomarker increased significantly after just those six minutes, and then their exercise was um, significantly enhanced in the in the healthy individuals, and it actually more than doubled in the patients with mild cognitive impairment. So um, wow. it was one of the first studies. Yeah, it was really, really exciting. And um, it was one of the very first studies to demonstrate that um, you can really reap this cognitive benefit from just a, cute, just a few minutes of exercise. And so now there have been a bunch of other studies that um, are building on that as well. But yeah. so when, when it comes down to, you know, you said, you know, can we talk about exercise and memory? Those are kind of the two main avenues that I like to focus on. And so I'll always say to people, well, well, what do you want to know more about, you know, the effects of acute exercise or the effects of long-term exercise? Um and that's they're really kind of different avenues, but both of them are really beneficial, I think. Yeah, you um, so, your your um, one of the things that um, I saw when I was doing some research for the show was, uh, and I used to do these a lot when I was in the fitness realm, and I still work out. I just don't focus a lot on cardio anymore. I'm more into yeah, the calisthenics, yeah. but um, H uh, hit workouts. These short-term, these yes. short bursts of workouts, the hit workouts. Yes. Um, 
do those work fairly well for us? And I, I think, is it what, like, in your study, I don't remember exactly. I think it was like you said maybe three minutes to get actually to exercise, the benefits of exercise for the brain. Is it three minutes, four minutes, something to that nature? In, in Yeah, so in our study, it was actually six minutes. So it would okay. it would take a bit longer. Um, now, uh, and so that's usually what I advise people. If you're going to do a HIIT workout, try to do uh, – now, what you have to remember is that we didn't quite test an exact HIIT workout because we tested – moderate intensity. And I think we could actually um, say that when you're doing a hit, you probably take that intensity up even higher because it's yeah. typically shorter, it's like a one minute, you know, one and a half minute, maybe two minute interval max. And you rest for like 30 seconds or a minute and you do it again. So I, I'm, as far as I know, there hasn't been any um, current research findings that show the direct impact of hit, but I would love to see that. I would love to see someone take the idea, really the foundation that we laid in terms of, of that approach and then see, okay, what exactly does this come down to? You know, how many how many one minute or two minute high intensity intervals can we should we do and how will that affect um, memory? Uh, but but I think one thing to remember is that when it at least in my research and what, what we were focusing on is if you think about learning and memory, a lot of people just lump those two processes together, and it's really important to think of them separately. So when you're learning, you're acquiring information, often new information for the first time. You're connecting it to a previous context that you have, right? And then mm -hmm. what happens is it goes through this kind of consolidation period during which short-term memory traces become more permanent, and stabilize into long-term memory traces. And then later, you'll recall that information, so like during a test or something like that. And neuroscientists have discovered that there's about a one to three hour window during which right after you've obtained new information for the first time, your brain is just consolidating that, that information on its own. So you, you almost can just go do something else. It doesn't even matter. Your brain is consolidating that information. And there's all these molecular and cellular changes to help that. And what we found is when you do things like increase certain neurotransmitters, like noradrenaline, during that time period, you can enhance the memory. And so that's, that's really um, the focus of our study. So what I try to tell people is if that sounds too complicated, just remember um, you want to exercise after you learn something. For the first time, you don't want to you don't want to exercise right before you're going to sit down to study. You want to exercise so, so like read that book chapter and then go on a run or something. Um, oh, so it's yeah, a okay, lot gotcha. to do with timing. It's a lot to do with timing. Yeah, I've noticed yeah. Um, when I used to be in school, college, which was years ago, but <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> but um, one of the things that I noticed during that time was that. I don't I, I don't remember when I studied if I um because I played basketball but I always remember mm -hmm. like I would always retain more like after exercising and then taking breaks. Like if I would study in twenty to thirty minute intervals, That's I always seemed to, to remember more than if I sat there and tried to you know, study for an hour, like taking twenty, thirty minutes and then go off and do something and then come back to it. And I yeah. was always surprised how much I retained. Is that is that I because love that. That's exactly, actually... Yeah, that's okay. exactly what you're doing. You were basically using that idea. And, um, and it's interesting that you bring that up because um, I had a, a research assistant who 
said that he was using that same technique when he was studying in college. And so um, that's actually one ongoing study that we have right now. We have students um, at a university, and they're, they're doing study increments like that. They're studying. Um, I won't get into the details to keep it kind of confidential, but they are studying and then taking an exercise break and then going back and studying again and taking an exercise break every 20 minutes. So we're going to test their memory at different intervals and see um, how long that enhancement might work and if there's an additive effect. Um, so really there's just really so many questions that can come out of this entire relationship between exercise and memory. And really what I want to do is be able to just kind of look into every avenue so that we can see at what, at, um, in what terms can we maximize this and how can we customize it for each individual person because I really think, you know, that, that there are individual differences <laughs> in our biology and the way that we learn and, um, and I think it would be amazing to, to see um, how we can take that to the next level and, and help people in learning. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, the, the learning aspect and the retaining more, um, is our brain a lose it or lose it, use it or lose it mechanism? <laughs> meaning, meaning like, cause I, I mean, they say that most people after they graduate from high school never, ever read a book. So I'm wondering yeah. if that part of what we're experiencing in our culture right now, <laughs> get older, we're getting more and more people who seem to be, um, and we'll, I want to talk a little bit about Alzheimer's and dementia, but I'm just wondering, if, yeah. could that be a contributing factor? Because we're not using our brains as much anymore. We're not right. exploring books and, and, and learning new things like how to speak new languages. But is, it a, is the brain a lose it or, or use it or lose it mechanism? Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that. I, I think that's kind of um, a double-edged sword when you put it in those terms because – I don't. I don't like to say that, but I would agree that um, you know, if and based on you know the biology of what we know, um, you you absolutely because of what we refer to as neuroplasticity. What people don't realize, and what I really, really want people to get, is that you have so much control over your brain. You have so much influence over your brain. They, they even did a study where. Um, and we'll talk about this. I know we're going to get into it a little bit with depression and, and serotonin, which is a, a neurotransmitter that is involved in mood elevation. Where if you just um, think, it sounds, it sounds kind of cheesy to say this, if you think happy thoughts, you can actually increase your brain's own serotonin, just like that, in a matter of minutes. Yeah. And they've done, they've done studies on that, and they've shown that, you know, they have people in um, undergoing a neuroimaging, and they actually measured an increase in their serotonin after they um, they were they either took place in changing their mood to happiness, sadness, or neutral, and it it increased only in the happiness condition. So you you have so much control over that, and they've done other studies where they've shown that um, like there's a famous taxi driver study that shows that as taxi drivers become more aware of this, um, they're using their visuospatial processing more. And so there's areas of the brain in the hippocampus that will actually become enlarged in the taxi drivers. They'll, they'll scan their brains before and after six months of taxi driving and show these increases. And then when they stop doing the taxi driving, those increases go away. So it suggests that, like, like you said, that use it or lose it principle. Now, that being said, I'm a forever optimist, so I think that right. it's never too late. I, I think that 
you know, at any age, you can get on that treadmill, you can go out for that run, um, you can get yourself moving physically and using your brain more. And uh-huh. um, I'm just a big nerd, so I'm obsessed with learning all the time. But yeah, it, it does make me sad <laughs> that most people aren't um, aren't avid learners and aren't avid readers and aren't um, curious. And uh, you know, that would be a whole nother podcast, I think. But but you know, we could talk about the education system and why that's the case. But that's why right. I really, you know, my my passion is really to it's really the hope that brain science will help people understand that they really can take that um, sort of control um, and over their own uh, sort of mental status and be able to have a positive experience with learning so that it's fun and it's rewarding and it's reinforcing so they'll want to do it again. So, yeah, that's really my hope. (laughs) Well, um, going back to exercise and talking about that, well, I know you've heard this where they say that too much exercise is detrimental to the body, but is too much uh, exercise detrimental to the brain? Is there like a place where you say after 45 minutes, you know, you need to pack it in or after an hour you need to pack it in? Is there some kind of, you know, effect on the brain yeah, after um, too much exercise? You know, I, I, to be honest, I, I don't. I'm not aware of any studies that are conducted, that have been conducted, that I have looked at that. Um, and, you know, we, there is a topic of overtraining in terms of, of you know, physically right. damaging your body. Uh, about the only thing that comes to mind when I think about this, and like I said, we could, we could probably do a whole other podcast just on the topic of stress and memory and the brain, and it's fascinating. There's, I mean, that's really uh, a majority of my work has focused on that, and so there's a lot of things that people are quite aware of and a lot of things that would really surprise you. So, um, so on the one hand, actually stress can be good. Short-term stress can actually be really good for the brain. On the other hand, um, most people know this, that when cortisol levels are elevated for too long, that can actually cause brain cell death, neuronal death, especially in that region involved in learning and memory, so in the hippocampus. And um, I'm not sure if marathon runners will hate me for saying this, but I do think that um, sometimes those types of endurance sports where you're elevating your cortisol for so long (laughs) um, at a time, and it's not just the event, it's the training for months and months and months, I don't know whether that could have sort of long-term effects on the brain in terms of damaging those neurons in those areas. And I would be really interested to see someone do some studies on that. Um, so that's yeah, I would tell you for now. <laughs> yeah, but that I'd would have to be as well because it would, it would be interesting to see if they follow some of these people who do these long-distance ring events to see if yeah. that has any long-term effects on right. if they get Alzheimer's or dementia in early age or yeah. have some kind of... of De, uh, deceleration in their in their brain function, but um, getting into depression because I know a lot of times uh, when people are depressed, the last thing they want to do is exercise. Mm-hmm. But it seems that there are some things coming about now saying that exercise can actually lift your mood. Uh, talk a little oh, yeah. bit about depression, and you mentioned um, I believe serotonin is actually a, a neurotransmitter. Well. But um, talk a little bit about depression and, and serotonin and how okay. is that how is that affected? And this is a loaded question, so I'm going to warn you. But I read <laughs> okay. somewhere where they were saying, as I was doing research for the show, it was 
said on that, I don't know how true this is because, you know, if you see something on Facebook, it doesn't make it true. If you read on the Internet, it doesn't make it true. But um, I came across something saying that serotonin, low serotonin is not actually the cause of depression. So kind of wrap all of that in a ball. Well, um, okay, I will actually, actually, um, I'm really glad that you brought that up because, again, I think that's something that is sort of a common myth out there, um, you know, for a lot of people. And serotonin got a lot of attention probably when the first um, SSRI uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs came out, like Prozac and those kinds of drugs to try to help with depression. Um, So serotonin got this huge, uh, made this huge splash. And so pretty much most people know what serotonin is. What's interesting about that is that depression is a highly, highly complicated disease and it's multifaceted faceted and there's there's obviously many many different influences to depression and so i think it's difficult even for specialists even for psychiatrists to say that we're any closer to knowing necessarily the causes or the you know the influences that lead to depression so you know like i always like to teach my students there's so many different factors that come into place everything from you know genetic um risk genetic, there's genes associated with depression, there's, um, you know, environment, obviously there's sort of early traumatic um, situations that might have impacted your um, risk for depression, there's nutrition, there's lack of exercise, (laughs) there's so many factors, there's um, abuse and use of drugs. So um, I think it is a very difficult and, like I said, multifaceted disorder um, but what's interesting is that there's several other neurotransmitters involved in the disorder, and a lot of people don't realize that. So um, I would say that the primary neurotransmitters that are involved are what we refer to as the catecholamines, and that mm-hmm. is serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline, like I mentioned before. And so what's interesting is that um, noradrenaline is often um, – a, a, a noradrenaline boost is, is often – um, sort of put into those uh, drugs that also are used, psychiatric drugs that are used to try to help people with depression. And um, um, it noradrenaline can be a, definitely a mood elevator as well. And you also think about, you know, when we're when we're feeling most alive, what are we feeling? We're feeling that rush of adrenaline, you know. So when you're feeling apathetic and down and just kind of just like not interested in life, your noradrenaline levels are probably low. Um, so what's really interesting about that is that when we exercise and looking at my acute exercise study, noradrenaline is one of the very first neurotransmitters to go up immediately, I mean almost immediately. And um, so it, it's really interesting. And they have now done um, a number of studies. I'll, I'll go back over what dopamine does as well. Um, and then I'll go back to the research behind this in terms of depression. So because you had mentioned, uh, you know, that most people who are depressed don't even want to exercise. So we'll, we'll go back to that in a second. But when you look at these, all these neurotransmitters, um, what these basically are doing, so just to give you a little bit of background, um, and hopefully I'm not getting too technical here, but um, I think it's really easy to, again, say, oh, this is your reward neurotransmitter or this is your happy neurotransmitter. So we're always wanting right. to simplify things, or at least the media always is. And so I'm always cautioning people against that and I'm saying, no, 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 do your research, find out what's really happening with that scientific study. Um, and a lot of people think they don't have the time for that. And that's why I, I'm trying to share, you know, 
easy, quick way to get this information, like through my videos and and right. um, and blog and things like that. But basically, um, dopamine is known primarily as the reward or, or a pleasure uh, neurotransmitter. And the reason for that is that it gets released and elevated um, pretty much from every kind of drug that's out there. So morphine, cocaine, any anything that's alcohol, um, there's not a drug on the planet that will not increase your dopamine levels. And dopamine is a very, very, it's kind of produced that euphoria feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's released when you exercise. Um, it's released from certain foods like uh, when you eat chocolate and things like that. And so it's heavily involved in what we call the reward system in the brain. And um, so in uh, one of my videos, I believe I, I discussed this and how you can actually use exercise to um, activate the system, the reward system. So, but that being said, dopamine is also involved heavily in learning and memory. It's also involved in uh, motor uh, activity, things like that. So then when we go to noradrenaline, that's involved in attention. It's also involved in mood um, and, you know, many, many other functions. And then when we go to serotonin, that is involved in um, so much more than just mood elevation. So it's involved in everything from sleep to dreaming to um, so many different functions and also learning and memory. So I think when you said, you know, when you, you came across that article that said we don't actually know that serotonin is a cause for depression, I would say that's actually correct in that there's a lot of theories out there and there are a lot of people mm-hmm. trying to approach the depression um, um, epidemic from many, many different uh, areas. And serotonin is just one theory. It's not the whole story. And so it's interesting um, that that has really been the focus of psychiatric drugs. And um, they actually did a study in 2007. I'm, I'm going to actually uh, recommend a couple books at the, at the end, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, there's a study that uh, was done in 2007, I believe, and where they compared um, psychiatric drugs for uh, for depression um, uh, versus exercise, and they found that the exercise was actually just as effective at boosting serotonin levels as the psychiatric drugs. So it's um, it's pretty interesting. Now, uh, you had said, well, when you're depressed, that's the last thing you feel like, right? So mm-hmm. that's why, you know, I do talk a lot about motivation and trying to get people motivated to exercise. And what I would say, my advice about that would be, really, if you're a family member or a friend of someone who is depressed, I would try to help motivate them and just start out, you start out small, you just say, hey, you want to come take a walk with me? And you get them out of the house, you get them to walk, and just that's all it takes, just just small, just baby steps, you know, before you know it, you're walking longer and then, oh, maybe, maybe we'll go on a brief jog. Okay. And then they start running. And so that type of thing will often, um, when they start to uh, feel better, when they start to actually feel those changes that are going on neurochemically, they'll start to want to do it. And then they'll, they'll start to kind of just do it on their own. And it's amazing. You'll hear testimonial after testimonial of people who have started exercising, even though they really didn't feel like it. And um, they just, they just turned their lives around and gotten better from depression. So, you know, I'm not going to say it works for everyone, but I do think that it's, um, it definitely can't hurt. And I think it's a really, really amazing uh, form of treatment. 
that's yeah. free um, and natural. Yeah, yeah free and natural. I'm, I'm in love with that. Um, when it comes oh. to serotonin, I wanted to ask you real quickly because I've seen a lot of things where, um, and this is somewhat true to me, that you see a lot more women who come down with depression, but men have depression yeah. as well. But they're saying yeah. that men, women don't make as much serotonin as men do. How how true is that? That is correct. That is correct as well. I know it's it's really sad, and I know that um, there it, there are uh, there are a lot of neuroscientists who are focusing on um, sex differences and looking into more of what's going on in the brain and why that is the case. Um, and I know that they don't know why that is the case in women, and they really are trying to look at um, interactions and influences of maybe. Um, other hormones, um, sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and um, looking at maybe whether there's interactions going on between those hormones and serotonin. Um, but that that is um, that is true. That um, based on the most current neuroscience research, that uh, women do have less than men. And I don't know why. <laughs> it's a conundrum to me. Yeah, I can't. I've, well. <laughs> I've all over the internet. I can't really get an, a, a really reliable answer why women make less serotonin yeah. than men. I, I can't find out yeah. what it is. Um, I'm going to keep you more than an hour, so I'm going to ask you to kind of give me a 30 second synopsis. I'm going to do what I call a quick round of questions for you. Um, okay. Real quick, um, female brain versus male brain, what's the differences if there are any? Ooh, okay. Um, actually, my lab, I'm just going to give credit to where credit to my lab, uh, my old lab, um, Dr. Larry Cahill's lab, it focuses heavily on sex differences, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they're over at UC Irvine. And, um, and there are, you know, there's a lot of brain myths out there in terms of sex differences, so I'll, I'll crush one of them right now. One of them, it says that, you know, the male brain is larger than the female brain. That is correct, but it's not larger in terms of brain-to-body ratio. So those are averages, and so when you take that into account, that's actually, so, you know, that sort of explains um, that difference right then. But I do, what I do want to say is there definitely are differences, and I'll touch on those in a second. Um, and, and there's probably a lot more now, um, and that's why I mentioned Dr. Kale's lab, because you could probably just even just Google his name and, and find his most current work. But, um, but I would say he's on the cutting edge, and he was looking into this way before anybody believed him, um, and he would get just a lot of, just a lot of flack from feminists and, um, you know, and even men who would say that, you know, what are you doing? Why are you trying to, you know, cause this kind of problem between the genders? And, and so there was sort of this assumption that if there were differences in male and female brains, that meant automatically that female brains were less or weren't, weren't as good as male brains. And what's so interesting about that is that, um, you know, that first of all, isn't the case. There's differences. It doesn't mean one is better or worse. <laughs> um, it just means, you know, for whatever reason, either um, genetically or just evolutionarily speaking, that there, there are slight differences. Um, and uh, also what was interesting is that, um, you know, in Dr. Kale's lab, he, our, his entire lab was, was females with the exception we had one male. <laughs> um, so, right. you know, and we were very strong advocates for um, the focus on sex differences, and it took him a long time for his peers even to recognize this, and a lot of people said, this is your career death, I wouldn't go there, what are you doing, and he, he stood by, you know, his findings, and now now the NIH is turning around and saying, okay, we won't even grant, you know, we won't even review your grant submission 
for a research study if it doesn't include gender differences. And so you can see how different the focus is now and how much they really right. are interested in that in terms of neuroscience. So I'll tell you the biggest ones that, that I know of. When it comes to emotional um, processing, um, Dr. Cahill did a study back in um, – it's so actually back in the 80s, uh, where he had men and women view an emotional story and a neutral story, and then he tested their memory a week later, surprise memory. And what he found was that, um, so they, they actually, he scanned their brains, and what he found was that um, in, in men, the um, portion of the brain that is activated, so to back up for a second, when, when you're looking at emotional material, um, obviously the visual cortex is involved, but there's an emotional area called the amygdala. Um, yes. And that is involved with, yeah, a lot of people have heard about that one as well. Yeah. And the amygdala will modulate memories. It works sort of in conjunction with the hippocampus to modulate memories for, um, for emotional material. So it's kind of that it's what's going on when you're remembering things from September 11th in vivid detail because everybody knows where they were, that type of thing. So in the men, the right amygdala is activated, and in women, the left amygdala is activated. And this has stood up across many of his studies and replications of the studies, and it's really interesting. Then when, when he tested their memory later, um, what happened is the men would recall the basic, the gist of the emotional story. And the women would recall the details. So so the, overall, their memory was enhanced in the emotional uh, story condition. But if you were to compare, okay, did they recall more details or more of the gist of the study, the men recalled more of the gist and the women recalled more of the details. And so what that says to me is there's just a difference in terms of how they process the information. What's interesting is a follow-up study was conducted by um, a student in his lab later um, looking at the effects of birth control. And what they found was that the women on birth control kind of mimicked the men's performance on that task so that they recalled more of the gist and not the details. So what's interesting about that is when the media got a hold of that a few years ago, all they said was, oh, my gosh, well, men aren't as good as women at remembering emotional material. Oh, and if you go on the birth control pill, it makes you, one, think more like men, and two, it ruins your memory. You should go off the birth control pill. It destroys your memory. And so it's so interesting because that, that's why I always caution people in, in my Brain with Monday um, YouTube series, I'm always cautioning people. I say, look, do not believe the media. Don't believe everything you hear um, because I've been interviewed by them and I've had them, you know, just like if you could be a fly on the wall and you could hear the questions that go through. So they'll ask the question. I'll tell them what I did in the study. And then they'll say, okay, so you're saying this. And so, and I'll be like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is what I did. And so we can, you know, maybe speculate this, but I'm not going to go as far as to say that, you know, <laughs> And yeah. so it's they, they because so and so the bottom line is just you know I'm not here to bash media um, they have their job to do but their job is to take something to take headlines and to make it sexy my job yeah. is to be a scientist and to be accurate and to pr provide the public with useful accurate information and so you know to me science science is everything science can completely help your life but not if you're learning the wrong information and if it doesn't serve you <laughs> you know what I mean so it's like yeah um, it's really interesting and. And so, um, and so I, I even had a, a, a news reporter struggle with uh, one of my latest studies, and she basically at one point said, you know, can you just write it for me? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> so I was so excited because it actually came out, like the report came out, 
in my words, and I was just like so happy. I was like, yes, <laughs> finally. But, yeah, but I would, yeah. So um, I, I, I caution people. I would definitely have to agree with that because I think that men, we, we always want the cliff notes. Women, you guys, like there is something. Okay, yeah, I remember that. Right? Oh yeah, and we have fun. Yeah. Oh, we yeah, have we, fun neuroscientists in, in a room all talking about research. We have fun making making fun of each other, battle of the sexes, just teasing each other. But it's all in good fun. <laughs> We're not serious. Um, another so. one that I wanted to get to before we actually end the show, um, and I wanted to save the last couple of minutes for us to talk about concussion because I know you're a football fan. I'm a oh, football yeah, fan. Absolutely. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about that. But um, – the I've heard I heard, I heard this in high school. I don't know how true it is. I'm going to bring it to you so you can clarify it for me. But I've heard when I used to be in high school, I I had a um, teacher that told me that people who have bigger brains are less intelligent. The smaller your brain is, the more intelligent you are. Is that okay? True? That's in hu- really in interesting. I've actually never heard that before. <laughs> I've but, heard I've heard but, that before. Okay, but what? What, but what is interesting is what I was going to say is I'd almost say I've heard the opposite. So there's definitely an assumption that people will think, well, if someone has a bigger brain, that means they're smarter. And to be to to tell you what the current consensus is is that there's no evidence for either. So wow. um, you know, with, without getting into the nitty gritty details of this, what's so interesting is that when it comes down to brain volume, I mean, it really it really could be a number of things. It's not. Um, the only way you'd know for sure how many brain cells someone has is if you actually counted them. <laughs> and so, um, so you know, when you – but there's so much more going on there. So as we learn, um, if, if you were to picture a brain cell, I like to tell people to picture a brain cell like a tree. If you were to picture it like a tree, there are branches that form as you learn and make new connections, and those are referred to as dendrites. And as those branch out and grow more, that has been associated with higher intelligence, higher cognitive processing, that type of thing. And, um, and so, you know, we scientists don't necessarily know. It, there isn't this one-to-one connection between brain size and intelligence or anything else. At, at this time, at this time, in terms of cognition. Now, um, the reverse is true in that if we see a lot of cell death, there's definitely, you know, you definitely get cognitive impairment there. You can actually see that um, on brain scans and, and after death. But uh, one of the things to, to think about is is when we talk about concussion, um, the the uh, neuropathologist who conducted the, the very first autopsy who discovered the condition, which I'll say in, in a second, um, he did the autopsy on Mike Webster uh, in 2002, who played for the Steelers, I'm sure you know. Um, That's right. And he, he did, yeah, of course, I know, Steelers fan. But so he did the autopsy on him, and um, he had known for years that this guy had suffered from all these cognitive problems, and he died so young in his 50s. And so he knew that this man was struggling so much. And normally what they do is they remove the brain during autopsy. They weigh it. Every human brain is supposed to weigh approximately three pounds. If it weighs a lot less than that, then they will tend to section it, look at it, examine it to see if there was something neuropathologically wrong with it, right? But in this case, when he weighed Mike Webster's brain, it weighed out to be just about right. And it looked perfect on the outside. It looked beautiful. And so they were about to just pack it away and call it a day. And he said, hold on a second, fix the brain. And 
the colleague, his colleagues were like, what are you talking about? And he basically had them slice it up, fix it, and look slice by slice through this guy's brain. And that's where he found the pathology that ultimately um, he, he made this connection and he basically um, referred to it as chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. And, um, and so what you have there is a lot of neuronal damage going on, but it, it was, it's still not enough to be able to see either with the naked eye or I'm, I can imagine even if you tried to, to image his brain while he was still alive, I don't think you would have seen a difference necessarily in the volume. And so that's why I say if that, if that um, offers any sort of explanation for that, you know, it is, it, it, like I said, it seems like an assumption to say, okay, bigger brain, smarter, but we don't mm-hmm. really know what's going on there. There's so much more <laughs> under that. <laughs> That, um, you know, yeah, that's what I heard through through high school. But um, when you look at football and you look at, you know, I, I saw the movie and I wasn't even aware of this until I saw the movie. But I knew that there had to be something that was was wrong because you would see these guys who were playing football. They're, you know, in, in uh, having a lifestyle. They're making great money doing something that they love and then a lot of these guys mm-hmm. were committing suicide. So oh, I knew yeah. that something yeah. had wrong. Um uh-huh. you're you're a Packers fan. I'm a Steelers fan. Yep. <laughs> and I like football, but then again I'm you know, every time there's like one of these big hits or, you know, something know. happens on the football field <laughs> like you cringe because you know what yeah. these guys are oh, yeah. going through. And I played oh, football yeah. when I was in middle school for like one year, yeah. and then I switched to basketball. But where do yeah, you think yeah. the, the game is going, and how do you put all that in perspective? You being someone who studies the brain, yeah, how do you sit there and, watch think, it and put it in perspective? Yeah, you know, it's so difficult because, like you said, I really am a football fan. Um, and, and, and so I kind of look at this entire situation with two hats on. I've got my scientist hat on and my football fan hat on. And, um, you know, I would really recommend to your listeners reading the book that Concussion is based on. It's called The League of Denial, and that goes through the entire it's, – it's told – it's so beautifully written because it's told from a very personal perspective. You actually kind of go into the lives of every single one of these players, and you see what they went through. And, uh, and there were times where I was literally in tears because of what they were experiencing. And I was just thinking, oh, wow, this is so devastating. And you think to yourself, well – just like you pointed out, at one point, they're, you know, on top of the world. They're doing what they love. They're so passionate about this game that they're playing. And then, you know, fast forward down the road in their lives, and they have this, like, just huge um, um, impairment to the quality of their lives. And so there's just this enormous price to pay. And um, what? so what do I think about that? I think... And what's interesting is that I, I will comment a little bit on the movie, and I, for those of you who saw my Facebook post on this um, uh, earlier, I brought up the fact that there, there is a female neuroscientist. She's a neuropathologist, Dr. Anne McGee, and she's over at Boston University. She has been a huge factor in this entire story and with bringing CTE um, public and with presenting it to the NFL and all that. So she actually worked in conjunction with Dr. Amalu, but Dr. Mm-hmm. Amalu is the person who the, the movie focuses on. And at first, I, I honestly, as a woman in science, I was really upset, and I thought, why did they leave this person out? So, I mean, there's no mention of her work, like, at all. Like, it's not even that they didn't have someone as an actress play her in the movie. 
they didn't even mention her work. And right, thought, right. She doesn't, she doesn't even get the shout out, you know. And so, um, and so, you know, and it's it's interesting. But in retrospect, now that I've seen the movie, I think it was actually done from from a Hollywood perspective. I think that they looked at the two stories, and and here I'm speculating as to why they they left her out. Um, but I think what they wanted to do was focus on Dr. Molly's story as a way to really contrast what um, what was happening in America at the time. And so you look at this person who, um, you know, he's an immigrant and he falls in love with America as a country and he wants more than anything to live the American dream. And so he is really upholding this these beautiful values and, you know, high integrity and everything with his work. And he's trying to be honest. And you see that contrast between that being embracing really what America should stand for and the NFL's reaction to him and trying to cover things up and hide things. And you see the irony of that. And so you see, and you kind of stand back and go, wait a second, but, but football is so much of what makes us, I mean, that's so much of what we represent um, as being Americans and what we connect with um, in terms of our ideals. And, and so I think that's what the movie chose to focus on. That being said, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. McGee's story is pretty dramatic as well because as a woman, she did have to face a lot of sexism and um, bad reactions from the NFL. However, what the movie doesn't show is if you were to read The League of Denial, the book that's based on um, there are a lot of positive um, developments that came out of what she's done in her work. And so the NFL eventually, when I, I think when the evidence just became too strong, they stopped pushing back and they said, okay, you know, um, we're going to, we're going to come forward with this. And, you know, you, I'm sure you know that there was that whole lawsuit and everything. And once they were finally, they had to be honest about it, they changed their approach. And instead of denying it anymore, they said, okay, we're going to pour a ton of money into funding your work, we're actually going to help you and work with you to try to protect our players. And so I think because of that, the NFL has formed a really positive relationship with Dr. McGee at Boston University. They're actually helping to fund a lot of her studies. And so it may be, again, like I said, this is just speculation, but it may be that because they're kind of portrayed in a negative light in this movie, that they have some sort of an understanding with her and that she didn't want to be part of it because it was too negative in terms of how it depicted them. So I do want people to know, even though the movie doesn't focus on that, but the NFL really did step up and they really did take a lot of, um, um, they did make a lot of changes and a lot of positive changes. So, you, but you said, okay, well, what do we think about, you know, how does that impact the state of football? And that is, is, is just constantly difficult for me because like I said, um, you know, when I'm watching the game, it's the same thing for me. So I'm just completely, you know, just wrapped up in it. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a head-to-head collision, and I just totally cringe. It's like, you know, and then my, my brain just goes off into neuroscience, and I'm like, ah, you know, <laughs> why yeah. does this happen? You know, and I'm just thinking the worst. And, um, and so it is difficult because, you know, how much are they going to change the game before it's no longer the game? And that, and that I think, is probably what we're dealing with. And so, you know, they've already made some changes and to try to make the game safer. And, you know, there's, there's so much more strict enforcement in terms of, like, head-to-head contact and stuff as much as possible. There's a lot of things that they've done to try to help the situation already. And I, I personally feel like it hasn't changed the game too much. I don't know if other people would agree with that. Um, but, I, 
I think that maybe people are a little paranoid when they think like, okay, at some point we're just not going to have football anymore. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what's going to happen. What I'm a little concerned about is the fact that Dr. McGee's work has been, she's been now finding CTE. So she actually found CTE in 87 brains of 91 NFL football players. And that's really shockingly high. Yeah. 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 And then she has most recently discovered CTE in the brain of a 20 year old and um, in the brain of a 17 year old. And so, for to be diagnosed with CTE, unfortunately, the person these were has all, to be these are all football these players, were, people twenty and seventeen. Yeah. Oh wow! Yes. Wow. Yeah. And so the problem is so so, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's basically what I was going to say is I think when people get so so on the one hand, where I think it's going to have an impact is on the younger players, unfortunately, because I do think that you know moms are going to be more concerned, and there's just going to be a lot more focus on that, and so. What, how is that going to affect the, the, the game? It might delay training. It might actually prevent people from joining professional football leagues until they're a bit older or something like that. I'm not really sure. What, what I do know is that what's really interesting is there seems to be this huge difference in terms of how concussions affect high schoolers, high school football players versus college. And it's shocking. Um, there is a, a second impact syndrome where, and this has only been reported in high school football players, where they'll get a first concussion, sustain it, mm-hmm. and be okay. They'll get a second concussion, and it'll be fatal. And that has never been reported in anyone older than high school age. And even with that, it's, it's rare. I, it's, I don't want to out moms out there. Yeah, fatal um, meaning death. Meaning death. They, yes, they, fatal meaning death on impact. Wow. And it is it is very rare. But the but the reason that neuroscientists think there may be such a difference between high schoolers and college players is because that brain is still developing. So we forget that your prefrontal cortex is still developing up into your early twenties. And so what what I think is that there may either just be a lot more safety measures in place or that there may be kind of a delay in training until people are just a few years older. But I don't think we're going to see that much of a difference. I don't think that it's – I think if you just wait a few – I mean, the, the, the difference in years is not that great. So while it's sad, it's also not like the worst news that we can think of. And then that also being said, what you had mentioned, you know, were these football players. Um, Dr. McGee is looking at all contact sports and not just football. And even though football seems to get so much attention for this, you know, this has been going on in boxers for years. CTE is actually not a new disease. The movie Concussion um, presents it that way, and Dr. Amalu is the one who named it. But it was actually referred to as punch drunk syndrome before yes, yes, um, I, I um, in boxers. Boxing. And so, yes. yeah, and so it's um, so people forget that, you know. And so I kind of like to remind people when they get all nervous and think, oh, my God, is football going to go away? Are we never going to have football again? Or is it never going to be or is it gonna be like flag football, you know? And um, <laughs> I just think, hold on a second. There's so many other contact sports out there, and they're not going away. This is not the only contact sport that has this happen. And what, like, like I said, I know I have to kind of wrap up here, but like I said in my, in my videos is basically my hope is just to educate people because, you know, just like if the more we know about the situation, the more people are educated so that they know what risk is involved. And that I think was what was so difficult about the story that illegal denial focuses on. It's because, People knew that concussions could be dangerous. They had no idea to what extent. And now that people are more aware, at least they know. At least they know going into football, okay, I know the risks. And that, I think, 
it's helpful for people in order to make their own decisions about something, you know, to say, okay, well, is this worth it? And then if this is worth it, what precautions, what measures can we take to try to prevent things or eliminate things as much as possible? Um, I mean, there's so much research being done on so many different fronts. There's, I, I won't spend a lot of time getting into it, but there's even testing for alleles that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. And they're just starting to do the very first few studies on this, looking at whether or not people who have a certain uh, allele is just a version of that gene, um, if people have the one that's connected to a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease, if that is associated, like if they undergo a certain amount of concussions, will they develop CTE versus somebody who doesn't have that allele? So, you know, I know that sounds weird, but maybe it's something as simple as that. Like you just get some genetic testing done when you go in to play football, you know, and if they're also trying to look at what positions are more, you know, impactful in terms of, of CTE. And so it might be something like that, that, you know, you're just kind of adjusting. So, you know, okay, I'm kind of high risk, so maybe I'm going to play this different position, you know, and that type of thing. We're, we're just kind of making adjustments, but we're not changing the game, you know, and that's just, yeah. that's just my, my thoughts on it. But. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on because there were some things that I, we didn't really get to touch on, and, but we'll have you on. Like, I, I tend to talk forever. Back at a, um, at a later date for like a part two of this yeah. podcast. Cause I, I think that people Absolutely. need to be up on, um, cause I know I've had the experience personally in my family where I've, I've seen, and I have an uncle right now who's going through dementia. I've seen my grandmother, yeah. she passed. Yeah. I've seen my grandfather go through this and um, my great aunt went through the same thing. So, I know there's a lot of people out there who are going through these. I think one of my friends, her mom, was, is fairly young. I think her mom's in her 50s, maybe early 60s, and her mom just got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So I really want to bring you back and talk a little bit about that to understand the Absolutely. functionality behind that at, at a later date. But yeah. I didn't want to keep you over an hour, and I actually kept you to 913, but we didn't get started <laughs> at the time. But I really enjoyed you know, speaking with you, and like I said, we'll have to yeah. have you back. Um, real quick, give us your YouTube channel and your website. Okay. Okay, so my website is www, and then it's the word doctor spelled out. So it's D-O-C-T-O-R, and then my full name, SabrinaSiegel.com. So www.DrSabrinaSiegel.com. And then my YouTube channel is www.YouTube, and then it's uh, backslash C, backslash, and then um, Dr. Sabrina Siegel. So... Those are uh, my basically my two channels. I also have a, a Facebook um, page. It's just Dr. Sabrina Siegel. And um, if you go to my website, you can also actually download my new free ebook, and that's yeah. on its motivational guide to exercise. So you might want right. to check that out as well. <laughs> um, and then I also have a, a podcast. I'm actually relaunching it, but it's called Action Potential, and it's in the iTunes store. Okay, cool. Uh, did you ever do any episodes yeah. on that? Okay, I'll have to go yeah, in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's in the process of being relaunched right now, so um, okay. I I will I will definitely get that info to you if if you want. But it's it's in the iTunes store, um, and yeah, there's a lot of information on my website, my research blog, and all of that. Yeah, you, so. you mentioned as well um, some books. I know you mentioned the lead. Yes. I can't remember. The name, but yes. what books would you recommend if someone wants to know okay, a little so, bit more? About so I mentioned I mentioned. Um, a League of Denial, I forget who the author is, but if you just Google that, 
Um, it's League of Denial, the NFL Concussion Crisis. And then mm-hmm. another one that I would highly recommend is called SPARK. It's called SPARK, the Revolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain, and it's by John Rady. Uh, he's an MD, and he is a psychiatrist. He's worked with um, people with ADHD, and he has a really interesting approach to uh, this book. The reason I like it is because it really presents its based on neuroscience research, but it's written in a way that's super easy to understand. You know, it's not like all, it's, it's almost written like a, like a fiction novel. It's so well written <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and people can relate to it. And it just talks about a lot of, you know, some of the things that we talked about, um, uh, it's, you know, focusing on depression, anxiety, so many different um, benefits of exercise and also on learning and memory. Um, and so I just, I've read this book probably 10 times and I recommend it to everybody I meet. <laughs> yeah. You, um, you may want to check out um I ha- I was supposed to have her on and we had a mix up with her assistant but uh there's a woman named Julia Ross and what she does is she, uh, what we were talking about so I was pretty fairly versed on the neurotransmitters and dopamine and catecholamines because it's in her book uh she has a book called the mood therapy and she uses okay. amino acids amino acids to boost people's mood mood if they're That's depressed cool. or if they have that wire you know the tired but wired brain and and she's had a a lot of success with that but i was supposed to have her on uh back in january and we had a mix up her assistant went out of town and someone else was doing something and so she's going to come back on later in the year but her book is really good and it'll give you you know more insight about you know that stuff and how she used amino acids to kind of help with the therapy in, in the brain and food sensitivities and all kind of other things but um it's it's a really good book but uh Dr. Okay. Sabrina I wanted to just thank you for being on I was educated I'm a bit of a nerd myself and uh I like to <laughs> ask it. questions and I'm curious so I really wanted to thank you for uh being on and like I said um in the months to come I'll get back in contact with you and we'll have you back on Great All right that thank you so great. much It's been a pleasure thank you Thank you I'll talk to you later have a great evening Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Went a little bit longer than um, I normally expect to go over. I think it's like 9.15 or something like that. But we got started late. There was a problem with the Skype, and uh, Dr. Sabrina ended up having to call in on her cell phone. But we got it done. Like I said, I would hope that um, in the coming months I'll be able to reconnect with her and get her back on the show uh, just to discuss some other things that we didn't touch on. I think there's a lot of science out there behind Alzheimer's, dementia, things like Parkinson's, things that really affect the brain, even the multiple sclerosis. So um, and there's some things about the brain that you may need to know about that. So we'll get her back on Wednesday. Tune into the show. We will actually have a show that was rescheduled. I'm going to have Raymond Francis on the Great American Health Hoax. So that'll be this coming Wednesday for sure. I know there's a lot of people out there who are, Looking forward to hearing him speak. I had him on as my second show in 2013, and that show, people are still listening to that show. And I believe now he's had, he's getting all of his books in Walgreens, in Walgreens, and uh, I think just Walgreens. I'm not sure of CVS, but I know Walgreens is carrying his books, and they're carrying like some of the really good titles. Never get cancer again, and, and all kind of his uh, all kinds of his, his other books as well. So again, Raymond Francis. Next, uh, not next week, Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, same fat time, same fat channel. Thank you for listening. One love, y'all. Good night.